Bibles to James chapter 4. James has five chapters. We're in the middle of the fourth chapter. James chapter 4. We'll cover four verses today, verses 7 through 10. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, give us the grace to hear your word and to obey your word. Give us the grace, God, to be a people humble in heart, repentant, trusting you to hear, to heal, and to lift us up. Father, we need your grace, your church, your people needs grace to repent so that we can see healing come to our land, for it will not come apart from your people humbled before you. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. May it encourage us and empower us as we proclaim it boldly. In Jesus' name, amen. These four verses here that I just read to you, this is a call to repentance, plain and simple and hard-hitting. James doesn't mince any words here in these four short verses. If there was ever a day, today is the day, that the call for repentance should be going out from the pulpits across this land. You and I have no say in what comes from other pulpits, but as for this house, we will preach and pray and proclaim the message of repentance in word and Indeed, it cannot just be our words, it must be our lives. It must be in action. We do this so that God will see there is a people willing to humble themselves and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways and trust that he will hear from heaven and he will, he will heal our land. We must not be like Elijah, though, who thought that he was the only one, there are very many more who have not yet bowed and kissed the bells of this world. Far more than the enemy wants you to believe. James is calling the church to repent, to be of one mind and of one heart in their worship and devotion to the Lord and in their love for one another. In these four verses, James, for their individual good and for the good of the church as a whole, 
commands the brethren to submit to God and to resist the devil. He commands them to draw near to God with assurance that God will draw near to them. He boldly calls them sinners. He boldly calls them double-minded as he commands them to cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. He commands them to lament and mourn and weep. He instructs them to let their laughter be turned to mourning and their joy to gloom. These are the kinds of sermons the church doesn't like to hear today. This is for their good, though. James is writing this to the church for her good. For these are acts of humility before God that move God to act on our behalf. This is the purposeful act of bringing themselves low in the sight of God, knowing that out of their humility, God would lift them up for their good and for his glory. James chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God. The first command we see here from James. Repentance Repentance begins with submission to God in thought, in word, and in deed. Remember what James is writing about here. What we're looking at in these four verses is a message of repentance. And repentance begins with submission to God. The preceding verse that I didn't read this week, verse 6, gives us a fuller context of how James is instructing the brethren. Verse 7 begins with the conjunctive adverb, therefore, which indicates a transition from verse 6 into verse 7. Let's look again at James chapter 4, verse 6, as we consider verse 7. James chapter 4, verse 6, James writes, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That was verse 6. Now verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. God does not give more grace to those who resist him. In fact, James writes that God resists the proud. Or, we could say it like this, God resists those who resist him. For that is what the proud do. They resist God. However, to those who are humble, to those who do not resist God, he gives grace. The truth that God gives grace to the humble transitions us to the command given in verse 7, therefore submit to God. Do you need more grace in your life? I do. Then be more submitted to God. The word submit means to be subject to. 
as in subjecting yourself to God. To submit is to bring under or to obey. To submit to God very simply is to be obedient to God. It's not complicated, though it's not always easy. Would you agree? This is not, this is not complicated. It's actually quite simple. It's just not always easy for us to do. But that doesn't mean that we get a pass just because it's not easy. God requires us to do hard things. He gives us the grace to do hard things. And sometimes obeying is hard, but he gives us grace to obey. It's one of our chief prayers that we should be praying, God, give me grace to obey. There's a part of us that cringes when we hear words like this describing what our position is to be in relation to God, much less anyone or anything else, right? Submit to God is a command. James is not giving a suggestion, but a command consistent with the rest of Scripture. Even Jesus, the Lord of glory, was submitted. The Father is not commanding us to do anything that his Son did not do himself. Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52. Speaking of Jesus, when he was just 12 years old, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. That means Jesus submitted himself to his parents in obedience to God's word. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Jesus, in obedience to God, subjected himself to his parents. The result is that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is not an accidental consequence of Jesus' willing submission to his parents. It is the fruit of a life submitted to God and God's appointed authority in his life. In other words... God has appointed authorities in each of our lives that we too are to be submitted to, whether we like it or not. It is grace that results from this humility. The same is true for us. As Christ was subject to his heavenly Father and those in earthly authority over him, we are to be subject to Christ and to one another in God's ordained authority. The church is to be submitted to her head who is Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and verse 24. Verse 21, Paul writes, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So there is a proper way we are to submit to one another in the fear of God. In the fear of God tells us who ultimately we all are submitted to. We all are submitted to God. In the fear of God means we're all under the submission that we owe to God himself. Verse 24, therefore, just as the church is subject, there's that word again, submit, submitting, subject, to be submitted is to be subject, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. When we submit to one another, Yes, wives, the Bible says you are to be submitted to your husbands. That's not a point of contention. That's not a point we get to debate. That is 
what the scripture commands. And it commands it as it commands husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. And you notice that Jesus didn't tell his wife, honey, would you go get on that cross for me because I don't feel like it today. No, he laid down his life for his wife, his bride, the church, and he was crucified. He died and was buried so that she could live, so that she could be crucified, die, and be raised up as he is. So when we submit to one another as ordained by God, we are submitting to God. You are not submitted to God if you are not submitted in all the ways his word commands you to submit. If you pick and choose how and when and who you will subject yourself to in disregard to God's word, you are resisting God. You're not just resisting man. You are, first and foremost, resisting God. That is pride. When we resist God... We're in pride. When you are in pride and when you are resisting God, guess what you're doing? You're cutting yourself off from God's grace. Because God doesn't give grace to the resistant or the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So if you want to go ahead and be proud and resistant to God, then just realize you're cutting yourself off from the grace of God. And I don't think anybody really wants to do that. You may believe that's not really happening, but that's actually what the Scripture says is happening. The command to submit to God is a command to not resist God. That brings us to the next command we see in, the, in this verse, which is the command to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Do not resist God, but resist the devil. The command to submit to God does not stand alone. It is closely followed by the command to resist the devil, which is followed by the promise that the devil will flee from you when you resist him in submission to God. From a position of submission to God, you are commanded to resist the devil, and the promise is he will flee from you. Peter also commands that we resist the devil. We resist him steadfast in the faith. We should know that our resistance does not exclude, hear me, church, our resistance does not exclude our experience of suffering. So, well, I'm submitted to God. Why am I suffering? No, you're confused. The Bible never said submit yourself to God and you'll never suffer. In fact, the Bible shows us the exact opposite, that suffering goes right along with our submission to God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Peter writes, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings experienced are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So don't ever get confused into thinking that somehow 
Suffering and submission to God do not go hand in hand. They do. We live in a world filled with suffering. We live in a world still under the curse of sin. You, Christian, are not to be under the curse of sin. You've been delivered from the curse of sin in Jesus Christ, but you still live in a world filled with sin, death, destruction, a world still overcome by the curse, waiting for, Paul writes in Romans, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God so that the world, the creation itself, may also be delivered from the curse. That day is not yet, but it's coming. Paul gives us the same exhortation. When he commands us to take up the whole armor of God, we do so that we may be able to effectively resist or withstand in the evil day. What day are we living in? We're living in the evil day. Evil is all around us. What are we to do? Oh, my goodness. Well, you're to resist the devil. You're to withstand in the evil day. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. That word withstand is telling us to resist, to resist the devil, to stand against the devil, to withstand in the evil day. We are to resist the devil, giving no place to him. We are to stand in the Lord and in the power of his might. Don't stand in your own might because you will not stand. Stand in the Lord and in the power of his might. Resist the devil, withstand him, and the promise God gives us is that he will flee from you. He can't have you if you belong to Jesus. Submission to God is resistance to the devil. The result of obeying the commands to submit to God and to resist the devil is that the devil will flee from you. I don't want to unduly focus on the devil. I think sometimes Christians get way too focused on the devil. We find one behind every bush, under every rock. We think every problem we have, every temptation that comes is, is because of the devil. And we get so focused on the devil, we lose sight of the fact that our greatest enemy, our greatest temptations doesn't come from out there. It comes from in here. It's your flesh. It's your unrenewed mind. It's your own lust and your own desires that draw you away and tempt you. Don't give place to those. All the enemy can do is just use those lusts and desires that you have within you. And you make them known by the things you say, by the things you do, by the way you live, by the habits you develop. So we don't want to unduly focus on the devil. The devil should never be our focus. We should be aware of him. We should resist him, but our focus is on God. In James 4, 7, we are commanded to submit to God, to resist the devil. And when we obey, when we obey, the promise is that the devil will flee from us. This is the power of our active, not passive, but our active submission to God. 
What's the difference between active and passive submission to God? Active submission is your obedience. Passive submission is you say, I am, but you're actually not doing it. You're not acting on what you're saying. This is an important point. It is from a position of submission to God in Christ that you effectively resist the devil. The devil does not flee from you simply because you resist him. He flees from you because you are first submitted to God. And from that place of obedient submission to the Lord, your active resistance of the devil carries the promise that he will flee from you. The enemy, in other words, recognizes your authority in Christ. Remember the story from the book of Acts when the seven sons of Sceva thought they were going to cast the devil out of someone? And they said, in the name of, the, of Jesus, whom Paul serves, we cast you out. And the devil, inside of that demon-possessed person, said, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but I don't know who you guys are. And instead of them casting the devil out, the devil actually cast them out and ran them out. And they, fled, they instead of the devil fleeing from them, they fled from the devil naked. And ashamed. The devil doesn't recognize your authority. The devil recognizes the authority that's resident in the name of Jesus. And if you try to resist him in your own authority, you will not. The enemy recognizes our authority in Christ. The devil, in fact, loves it when we are deceived into thinking that we have the power to resist him in our own authority, apart from the power given us in the name of Jesus. Apart from Christ, we have no power over the enemy. It is only the grace of God that keeps evil at bay. Do you wonder why the world doesn't just descend into utter chaos and destruction? It's the grace of God. That's why. Jesus said in John 15, 5, Without me, you can do nothing. Paul writes in Colossians 1:17 that it is Christ who is literally holding all things together. That's literally what the Scripture says there. In Christ, all things consist. In Christ, all things are held together. Without the Lord Jesus and his grace, this world and all things in it would descend into utter chaos and destruction. We see glimpses, that, glimpses of that in areas, in cities, even in our own nation, where Christ has been made unwelcome and has been cast out, so to speak. You can't cast Christ out. But a people, a nation, can reject him, and in that rejection of Christ, Christ will turn them over to the natural consequences that will follow from Christ being unwelcome. It's what Jesus told his disciples. You go to a town, you find the man of peace, you go to his house, and if he rejects you, if that town rejects you, you just stand at the of the city limits of that town, and you say, shake the dust off your garments, and you take your peace with you and depart. This is what we see happening in, in portions of our country right now. The peace of God has departed. Have you noticed? I mean, if it wasn't, if it wasn't true, if it wasn't real, I wouldn't even believe it would be possible. Things that were unheard of, unthinkable, just a few short years ago. 
are not only allowed, it's becoming law. You can't resist anyone stealing anything if it's not over $950. In fact, we'll fine you $18,000 if you or your employees try to resist and keep someone from shoplifting in your shop. You can't do anything about it. Kind of sounds like God's turned people over to their own devices and will allow them to just suffer the consequence of their rejection of Him. Because a man in his infinite wisdom thinks he knows much better than God does. And God says, okay, let's see how that works out. And you and I should know that's not going to work out very well. The question is, will that plague of sinful destruction spread because God's people continue to refuse to humble themselves and seek his face? I don't know. We'll see. This is an aspect of submitting to God and resisting the devil that blends right into verse 8. So when, when James is writing this and he's commanding us to submit to God and to resist the devil, this blends right into verse 8 where James exhorts us to draw near to God. James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Gosh, that wasn't very nice of James to call them names, but he did, didn't he? He called them sinners and double-minded. Y'all better hope I don't ever get that bold. Draw near to God. To draw near to God is a phrase used to describe how the priest would approach God under the Old Covenant. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. This is a promise. The command to draw near to God is here more than just a picture of the priest coming to bring his offering and worship God in the tabernacle or the temple. The command to draw near implies a distance that is created by the separation that is caused by sin. That's why the priest would draw near to bring the sacrifice, to bring the reconciliation. And so the fact that we are commanded to draw near to God implies that there is a separation that has occurred, and that separation is caused by sin. We're not meant to understand this in the context of salvation, I want to make this really clear. When James writes, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, he is not, capital N, capital O, capital T, talking about how you get saved. He's not. This is not about salvation. God does not save us because we draw near to him. God is not waiting for us to draw near to him so that he may draw near to us and save us. Nowhere does it teach that in the scripture. The scripture is very clear in this regard. Salvation is by grace alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Psalm 3.8. Jonah repeats it in his prayer after he's been swallowed by the whale and he thinks he's done for. And he quotes... He quotes the psalmist. He quotes Psalm 3, verse 8, and he says, Salvation 
is of the Lord. In other words, what could Jonah do in the mouth, in the belly of that fish sinking to the depths of the ocean? How could he save himself? Guess what? He couldn't. And he says, salvation belongs to you, Lord. I'm either going to be saved or I'm not going to be saved. And there is nothing I can do about it. We were dead in trespasses and sins when he made you alive, Ephesians 2.1. We were enemies of God when Christ saved us, Romans 5.10. We did not choose to draw near to him. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world, and he drew near to save us, Ephesians 1.4. Thus, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are his workmanship created in Christ It is nothing of us. It is all of him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. The salvation of unbelievers has nothing to do with them drawing near to God. Yet James writes these words, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James, remember, we've said this several times over the course of going through this little book. James is writing... To the brethren, he's writing to believers. He's writing to the church. He's writing to those who have been saved, or at least who profess to have been saved. The letter James writes is to the believers, not unbelievers. Therefore, we must understand this verse to be about the restoration of fellowship of Christians. Like the father of the prodigal son, God stands always ready to welcome back his children who repent and turn from their sinful ways. And the restoration of fellowship that has been broken by sin as God's children draw near to him, that's what repentance is. It's a change of mind. It's a turning around and returning to God. When God's children draw near to him, he draws near to them. That's what James writes. The language here helps us understand from our point of view what is happening when we repent of our sin and turn to the Lord. Just as it appears the sun is rising and setting from our earthly point of view, it is in fact not. You do realize that, right? The sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't go down. The sun isn't going up and down. We're turning. And it makes it look like the sun's going up and down, but it's not going up and down. That language is used for us as we live on this sphere called the earth. And as it turns, we see things from an earthly point of view. The Bible writes... Through the course of the Bible, the the Bible uses language that we can relate to because we live on the earth, and it writes in such a way that we understand from our point of view. And from our point of view, as we draw near to God, he seems to be drawing near to us just like it looks like the sun is rising and and, uh, going up and down, but it's not. This is important for us to understand. Though it appears God is drawing near to us as we draw near to him, 
he first drew near to us, and he has never departed from us. If you belong to Jesus, the promise is that he will never forsake you, he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. He has promised that in his word. As he As we draw near to him, we can say that he is drawing near to us because we are coming closer to him in our heart and in our mind. We should take great comfort and assurance in the drawing near that God allows us to experience. Just like every morning you experience the sun rising and every evening you experience the sun setting and you are privileged to get to see beautiful sunrises And beautiful sunsets every day. And from your point of view, it looks like the sun's coming up and it looks like the sun's going down. But in reality, it's not. It's not the one moving, you're the one moving. And it appears when we draw near to God, He's drawing near to us. But the reality is, if you belong to Jesus, he's not the one moving. You're the one moving. You either moved away from him, and now you're drawing closer to him, or you've stayed close to him, and you want to be even closer to him. And so from our point of view, as we draw near to him, he's drawing near to us. That is grace that allows us to experience that. Then James gives two more commands that provide even greater detail in the context of this command to draw near to God. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. In the command to cleanse your hands and to purify your hearts, we cannot help but picture the priest drawing near to the Lord to offer sacrifice. We must also see the moral obligation of all God's children to walk with clean hands and pure hearts. We have an obligation in Christ to do that. Exodus 19.22, Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. James may not have had the priesthood of all believers in mind, but it applies for we are called a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people who should show forth the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. A priest was not to draw near to the Lord with dirty hands or a dirty heart. The reality of the outward cleansing and purity was a picture of an inward cleanliness and an inward purity. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts both outwardly and inwardly. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. There is a direct reference here to the spiritual adultery James pointed out in in verse 4 of this chapter. Spiritual adulteresses are idolaters. Idolaters do not have clean hands, nor do they have pure hearts. As his children, we are called to have both. 
clean hands and pure hearts, having repented of our adultery. Now, by the blood of Christ, we are able to draw near to God with clean hands and a pure heart, not because you're holy, but because Christ is holy. Not because your blood is made away, but because his blood is made away. And in spite of our own unholiness and our own unrighteousness, we lean upon, we fall upon the righteousness given to us in Jesus Christ. And so we come boldly to the throne of grace by a new and living way, by the very blood of the Savior. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is a statement intended to shock those sinners to attention to what is being commanded here. There is no subtlety in the address James uses when he calls out these believers with, you sinners. James is speaking the truth in love, just as Jesus did. James is willing and aiming to offend by calling out the behavior and the attitude of these believers as he calls them to repentance. If we do not call men out to repent of their sin, we choose to leave them in their sin, unchallenged by the truth. Like Jesus, James refused to leave men unchallenged by the truth. Then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. He doubles down here. You sinners, you double-minded. In a very blunt way, James calls the brethren double-minded. In case you don't realize that, that, that was an insult. It was purposeful. And James was hoping they would be insulted. So insulted that they would actually do something about it. He's making reference to their spiritual adultery that is indicated by their double-mindedness. Their hearts and minds are divided between God and the world. While professing love and faithfulness with their mouth, they commit adultery and idolatry in their hearts and by their actions. James commands them to purify their hearts and stop being double-minded. A pure heart is a heart with a singleness of focus that is centered upon the Lord. As we come to James chapter 4, verse 9, we cannot help but think of the wisdom of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. James seems to, to invoke the words or evoke the words of Solomon, turning the words of the king into a cry for repentance and godly sorrow. Solomon writes, listen to what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 1 and then verse 4. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1, to everything there is a season, to a time for every purpose under heaven. And in verse 4, Solomon writes, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now listen to the words that James writes in his letter, James chapter 4 verse 9. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is writing to these believers who are struggling with sin in the church, and he is warning them that this is not the time for laughing and dancing. 
This is not the time to just say, well, it's going to get better. Well, what are you going to do to make it better? Well, things will change. Really, what are you going to do to help things change? Rather, James writes, this is the time to lament and mourn and weep. By James calling out the sin in the church, James is calling men to repentance. He is reminding men what time it is. As God's people who are called by his name, we of all people should know what time it is. When it was time for David to rule Israel, the sons of Issachar understood the times. They knew to who their allegiance belonged. Listen to the words from 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. Of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren were at their command. The context of that scripture is, is Saul has been overthrown. He is no longer king. It is now time for David to take the throne. But those who were loyal to Saul did not all put their allegiance behind David. And so Israel had to make a choice. Are we going to follow Saul, the line of Saul, or are we going to follow David? Well, the Bible says that the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. What Israel ought to do is follow David because God has anointed David king. Saul, he has taken the kingdom from Saul. Saul is now dead. It's not time to keep following Saul in his line. It's now time to throw our allegiance behind David because this is the king God has anointed. We are the people called by God's name today. And as we survey the land and consider his church, how many know where their allegiance should belong? I'm talking about the church. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. How many in the church today know where their allegiance is to belong? How many do we see with divided minds professing loyalty and love for Jesus while approving of sin and wickedness in the name of of Jesus? The answer is too many. There's too many of the church saying one thing with their mouth, but their life, their actions actually betray what's really happening in their hearts. James understood the times. He called the church to lament and mourn and weep. He chastised them that their laughter should be turned to mourning and their joy to gloom. He called the church to repentance. His words still call the church to repentance. What was it James wanted them to mourn? He wanted them to mourn the sin that had infiltrated the church and created adulterers and adulteresses out of God's people. He wanted them to mourn the very things that he would want us to mourn in our own churches today. You might say, but Pastor Jeff, Christ Fellowship is not involved in that sort of compromise and spiritual adultery that we see in other places and other churches. You might say, we are a church that preaches and stands for the truth. We even have the reputation in our community to prove it. 
I say, let us not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are only one member of the whole. We are only one member of the greater body called the church. For all the things we may get right, we are only a small part of that great body of people who have drifted and now get much wrong and embrace much sin. That alone should cause us at Christ Fellowship to lament and mourn and weep. Each one of us must discern the times, take an honest inventory, and respond accordingly as God would have it. And the proper response will be humility, and that is where James directs us in the last verse of our text. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. James chapter 4, verse 10, let me read it again. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Consider carefully these words. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself. Bring yourself low. When I was in Ethiopia, one of the visuals that's burned into my mind was their act of worship in which they would bring themselves low by placing their very face into the ground. They would lay out, if not kneeling down with their face to the ground, they would lay prostrate before the Lord with their faces to the ground. And it wasn't just an act. It wasn't just a show. They would worship their Lord and they would bring themselves low. It was an act of humble worship before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They brought themselves low before the Lord God Almighty because they recognized who they were in relation to who he is. This is what James is exhorting the brethren to do. Humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. That is what we are exhorted to do, to bring ourselves low before his presence Bow yourself, body, soul, and spirit before the king, knowing that if you make yourself low, he will lift you up. It's why each week we invite you to kneel or assume a humble posture. This is what this means. It is bowing before the Lord. It is making yourself low before the Lord. It's not us making ourselves low so that we will be lifted up. That would be a form of manipulation, manipulation of God. And if you haven't figured it out yet, God will not be manipulated. This is a promise. When we recognize who we are in relation to the Lord and His glorious holiness, we can do nothing but bring ourselves low, and in that act of humble worship, He will lift us up. Consider Isaiah's reaction when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 5, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And if you say, Pastor Jeff, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman of unclean lips, well, but you dwell among a people of unclean lips, that's for sure. For my eyes have seen the King, 
Isaiah said, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said, I am undone. We may not fully comprehend what he's saying here, but what he is actually saying is, I am destroyed. I am cut off. I am utterly destroyed. I am utterly cut off. Whatever Isaiah was, now he was nothing. Being completely undone and destroyed by the glory and the holiness of the Lord God Almighty. God undoes us and then he lifts us up. James had an understanding of this glory and this holiness that embodies the Lord. We dwell in his presence by the spirit that dwells in us. Therefore, James is saying, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. It is as though he pleads with them. Don't you know who he is and that you dwell in his sight? Do you know who he is and that you dwell in his sight? I'm asking you, do you know who he is? Do you know that you dwell in his sight? What happens when we bow down, bringing ourselves low in his sight? James tells us that God will lift us up. Jesus came to this earth to lift us up out of our sin and death. He did this so that we could be seated with him in the heavenly places. Listen to the words of the apostle Paul In his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's where you are right now in Christ, even though you are right now seated in Christ Fellowship Church. We must be brought low before we can be raised up. And if we do not recognize our sin, how can we know our salvation? If we do not see our sin, we will never see our need for the Savior. This is why James is not shy at all about calling out the sin of the believers to which he is writing. The very things James is writing to the church in his day are the very things needed in the church in our day. We need this humble repentance at Christ Fellowship Church, and we need it in the greater church in our city, in our county, in our state, in our nation, and beyond. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christian, prepare yourself to come to the Lord's table. He has called you this morning. 
you have confessed your sin to him in humble repentance, and you have received from him the assurance of pardon. He has consecrated you by his word, and now he invites you to commune with him at his table, to eat his bread and drink his wine, and so be renewed and refreshed and empowered to go out into this world. Christian, welcome to his table. You do not have to be a member of this church. But if you are a member of his church, his body, and you have been baptized into his name, you are welcome. Whether you are young or whether you are old, you are welcome to this table. Welcome to Jesus. Please stand for your charge. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus calls his people the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are meant to season what we come in contact with by the truth of the gospel. We are to bring light to the darkness by letting the light of Christ shine through us. Jesus teaches us that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. The Bible calls you that city. You are the new Jerusalem, the city of lights that gives light to the world. You are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, just as Jesus did. James is also instructing us in these things. James calls the church to repentance and we must also, in our own day, in our own time, call the church to repentance in both word and deed. Church, as you go from this place today, be salty and let your light shine. Go submitted to God. Go resisting the devil. Go drawing near to God with the assurance that he is near to you. Go with clean hands. Go with a single mind and a pure heart. Go knowing the times. Go knowing when it is time to let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Go humbling yourselves in the sight of the Lord, knowing that he will lift you up. Go knowing you have been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. Go knowing that Jesus is Lord, and no matter what, we win. Amen? Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you.